Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Brian Cooper. Still missing Alexi the Greek, who is, um, he's gone, I believe, last seen on Crete somewhere. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, but in the meantime, I have with me David Sessions, uh, who, you know, for <laughs> first time, long time. Um, and he's here to talk about Adam Gopnik and uh, his recent book, which is, um, what is it called again? Uh, it is called uh, a, Thou- a Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. I kept wanting to say A Thousand Splendid Sons, but that's not correct. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, can, can you tell folks just a little bit about yourself while we're at it? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm currently a uh, doctoral candidate in history at uh, Boston College. I do uh, European intellectual history. I'm working on the history of social science and particular um, ideas about industrial society, which is a kind of, uh, to put it crudely, kind of a liberal alternative to calling it capitalism that developed in the um, middle of the 20th century, but um, also was something that, you know, Marxist intellectuals discussed um, seriously as well. So that's my, that's my main job. Um, and I'm also a critic uh, for the New Republic, and I've written for Dissent and Jacobin and uh, various other places. Yeah. A, a, a top quality book reviewer, if I, if I may be so bold. Um, oh, thank you. I've I've done a few book reviews in my day, and 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 doing do you know, doing it in the fifth grade essay style is not too hard, but doing it well is is a, is tricky. And um, you've got a really a really great review of the, the of Gopnik and um, the New, the New Republic, so we'll link to that for sure. Um, yeah, it was a um, it's I try not to do this too often, but it's one of those where. Um, it's someone I've read and, and hated for um, for a long time, so it's, it comes fairly easily. Uh, yeah, I I try to be fair anyway, but but yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and so I read this book. I mean, I, I read it very fast, you know, just to to prepare for the for the podcast. You know, not 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 the the closest reading, but it was it was really. Just some, yeah. <laughs> the 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 weakest of tea, I might say. <laughs> you know, the kind of tea where there's any barely discernible color. Yeah, yeah, that Al- that albino tea, you might call it. That's um, a great way to put it. It is uh, strung together is a is a phrase that comes to mind. Um, it just it's one thing after another, and it doesn't it doesn't say much. Yeah. And the the thing, you know, what's what struck me as a bad sign is that uh, right right towards the beginning, he's rhapsodizing about John Stuart Mill, who he he really loves and his sort of illicit relationship with Harriet Taylor. Um, and he says that those two were the like first feminists or like like the first people to call for full female equality. And that just like like just popped me right out of the text immediately. And it was like, that sounds like bullshit. I'm pretty sure wasn't there people something Mary Wollstonecraft and some other Mary Wollstonecraft like? uh, in the, around the time of the French Revolution. Uh, Alain de Gouges, who's a, f- a French um, writer who wrote a book 
quite some, the rights of women. That's a famous uh, text that came out during the, the radical phase of the French Revolution. Um, yeah, they were definitely not the first. Um, but that's one. Yeah, that is one of his uh, one of his things is the just kind of sweeping historical declaration and being a historian sometimes it's stuff that you know is is ridiculous um and other times <laughs> it's uh it you're just like that that can't be right like, absolutely can't be right or 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 it has a little bit of a uh it's an interpretive issue like when he claims that western politics has leaned to the left ever since the french revolution which he is a claim he makes in this book and things like that which is is an interpretive un, an unverifiable interpretive claim but also one that's just manifestly false yeah i mean who can forget the great liberal uh leaning of 1848 and and um yeah but, but, and but i may- wish i wish i had just i had just finished teaching a class on uh, the 19th century, where I read, you know, a bunch of liberals, and you know, I had my students read liberals and radicals, and and I wish I had done that before I reviewed this, because I I've, I feel like I would have picked up even more, uh, having it fresh on my mind, I would have picked up even more stuff like that. Yeah, um, but you know, to get into the meat of the book a little bit more, um, one of the things that that jumped out at me immediately is how. That Gopnik has these these he seems allergic to clear definitions of things, and so he he says his his he calls liberalism quote an evolving political practice that makes the case for the necessity and possibility of imperfectly egalitarian social reform and ever greater if not absolute tolerance of human difference through reasoned and mostly unimpeded conversation demonstration and debate. And this struck me as like you 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 know the the Orwell essay uh, politics in the English language where he does the 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 bureaucratic butchery of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I haven't <laughs> read that. I can I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, right. He I mean he he write he writes he rewrites the the famous Ecclesiastes line about you know the race is not always to the swift nor yet you know riches to men of understanding and so on and just like horrifying bureaucraties and this to me strikes me it's it's like someone just sort of throwing up great clouds of ink to disguise the fact that like there is not that much here you know what are you talking about Gopnik yeah well I mean that that phrase that sort of definition of liberalism is interesting because it's one of the few it's one of the few mo i mean i guess maybe this is my uh, you know academic uh <laughs> idiosyncrasy um i i so, sort of appreciated that just because it was an effort to say uh, to say something um precise as opposed to uh what he i mean however unsuccessful it is as opposed to what he usually does which is just um kind of whenever he comes to a point just just some kind of witty you know silly joke or something um yeah that that is doing exactly what you're saying that's that's getting out of a getting out of a serious uh, intellectual difficulty by um turning to 
jokes and he'll be and he'll be like oh i'm not a you know i'm a i'm a humorist you know <laughs> or you know whatever he, he a humoristic essayist or something um, yeah so so i i did appreciate that he tried to give a you know somewhat academic uh definition of liberalism i'm less i'm less uh sure that he succeeds in substantiating that as either uh, either any of recognizable version of historical liberalism or um, or making the case that such a thing is relevant to uh, is the answer to our problems yeah right and and the other thing that struck me as uh, you know in addition to this thing being about uh, 65% too long in terms of the, the ideas it, it has, is that there is no discussion whatsoever about economic systems um, in this definition of liberalism, which I think, I mean, you're the historian. I'm the, I'm the witless pundit <laughs> asshole. Um, but I would, I think it's fair to say that as a matter of history, liberalism has been extremely concerned with economic structures, and to to do this seems like sweeping quite a quite a lot under the rug. Am, am I am am I wrong? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's definitely a you know what you would call an idealist intellectual history in the sense that it's you know putting ideas together as if. Uh, as if they don't happen in the world, um, which is, you know, ironic for for Gopnik, who's so kind of interested in the practical and the end of, you know, he says that constantly. Uh, liberalism is not just an an idea; it's it's a it's a practice. It's what people live, and it takes, you know, it's it's more about uh, community than ideology and things like that. Um, but it does, um, and and interestingly, he the only place. He really talks about, you know, liberalism and economics. Is um, and and first of all, we should say that you know that is, um, you know, one one of his one of his central claims in the book is that uh, is this kind of uh, moral arc of history type claim that that liberalism is always pushing toward its own improvement it's always criticizing itself it's always open to uh to protest and change and evolution um and so we don't need anything else because liberalism is already everything it's already open to everything else um and one of one of the you know and so he's he he tends to associate it with um people who are in the ambition ambiguity of you know the 19th century where there are radical liberals and socialists who only only at a certain point you know after the 1848 revolutions um but even even after you know there's still you know people we might call radical liberals um who who are extremely critical of the system as it is or of 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 liberal orthodoxy uh, as it is, and he he tries to make you know, all of liberalism uh, to reduce it to those you know those those types of people, and you know misses the whole economic or socioeconomic story of you know the century of liberalism, which was um, you know liberals were 
opposed to universal suffrage. They were um, all, you know, all the way up to the you know, early 20th century. You know, the vision of liberalism was, you know, rather than rule by uh, rule by you know hereditary aristocracy, rule by you know oligarchy or by you know property, you know landowners, you know people whose wealth came from uh, from capitalism. It was never about, um, you know, it, it, and this includes the the American founders and, you know, most of the liberal politicians of, you know, 19th century Europe. And when that, when, we, when it got to the point where it was clear that universal suffrage was going to happen, uh, they were extremely pessimistic about it and saw it as, you know, the, the end of, the end of the end of progress, the end of you know the the whole social system they had imagined. Yeah, and so really, the only time he sort of hints at this is in the chapter on uh, the left chapter, you know, why the left hates liberalism, and he kind of he you know, reiterates you know a, a basic kind of left case about liberalism, and he so, you know points out that Marx says you know the liberal rights and freedoms are the are the you know a bourgeois ideology and they cover for you know they cover for you know the ec- economic domination of a certain class you know which is which is true but he sort of present presents it as uh, you know puts it in the mouth of Marx or Marxists um, and weirdly never never really refutes it or uh, argues with it in his own uh, conception of liberalism. Yeah, what, one thing that jumped out at me in that section is um, he seems very unfamiliar with sort of basic leftist, um, like, like you know, thinking and traditions. Like, he, he says the, the bourgeoisie has no existence, and, and he, you know, he, re- he references a lot of the ways that bourgeois tends to be used as sort of slur, you know, it's like, oh, a bourgeois coffee shop is like, like, a, like a synonym for hipster, but like... In the in the Marxist like tradition, bourgeoisie is just like the people that own the wealth. They own the factories and the property and the land and everything. Like there's a specific technical definition, which you know, like while it may bleed around at the edges, like there is absolutely an American bourgeoisie. You know, you look like the top ten percent owns you know what three quarters of all the wealth in the country or something like that. Um, like like. That that is a clear and consistent definition, which fits with the statistical reality. You know, for someone who's like upset, like you know, fancies himself a kind of like deep thinker, and you know, is a pragmatist, like all liberals claim to be. Like that struck me as an astonishing, you know, statement to make. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's one. It's I don't think the the Economist or the or the Financial Times would have any problem saying there's a bourgeoisie. Um, yeah. And and that's part of, um, you know, I read that part, um, that extremely defensive passage on the, the term (laughs) bourgeoisie as, um, as personal. Um, and he's, you know, he's given, or mentioned this in interviews, just how upsetting it is to be sort of treated as some, you know, rich bourgeois person uh, by people don't who don't like him. And, and I get that, like, you know, 
Gopnik is a bourgeois intellectual. There's no doubt about that. His function is to tell those tell the bourgeoisie what what they want to hear. Um, but he's also in you know the historically ambiguous class of of intellectuals who are uh, you know often financially and and economically closer to you know the working class or the the, prole- the, the lower middle class, but you know, by by way of their sort of cultural knowledge or cultural position in, in the discourse, or are uh, you know rub shoulders with the bourgeoisie. So uh, that's that's just typical of his like seeing everything through his own eyes or or his own uh, experience or the experience of individuals rather than uh, looking. Or, knowing the elementary, you know, basics about social structure. <laughs> yeah. And then, and <clears throat> I guess this, like, you know, it, it gets to, and, and, you know, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here because this wasn't a close reading of the book, but nowhere does he really grapple with the sort of economic his, historiography of, of like liberalism as, you know, people who who labeled themselves as liberals, especially in the 19th century. Um, he says that that neoliberalism, which he define, which he which he alternately says, as you note in your review, is, is completely meaningless, but also is like an, a, a knee jerk adherence to free market dogmatism or something. But he's he says that um, it's, quote, not really a part of the genetic line at all of liberalism. And that is just like wildly inaccurate. Laissez-faire liberalism, that was 19th century liberalism in the UK and in the United States. He doesn't say a single word about the self self-described liberal republicans in the 1872 election who are going for, you know, gold standard, deregulation, bust the unions, you know, uh, end reconstruction and um you know it, it, being in the context of like fighting for justice in uh that particular time period namely like democracy and and civil rights for uh freed slaves in the south they were on the other side you know and 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 like he he talks a little bit about like the British Empire and the the um, you know the the Congo genocide under King Leopold, um, but like there, you know, but no no sort of connection of of that to uh, of imperial you know late nineteenth century imperialism to. Um, Freedom of the, property, the, the poli- to the po- you know the the logic of industrial capitalism in Europe, which it absolutely was, like the two were inseparable. You know, imperialism was closely linked to the economic crisis of or depression of the late nineteenth century. And yeah, you know what people thought they had to do to combat like falling falling profits, um, which is by is is by opening you know by force uh, new markets and in sort of uncolonized places um but uh, yeah and and it's i mean he repeatedly portrays liberalism as just this like having having its you know historic and he i mean he 
technically means himself, but he also kind of casts it back onto all the, the history he's talking about. Cause he really doesn't, um, I, I think this is how he gets out of, he gets out of the fundamental failure to, to grapple with the present and, you know, the, the, the failure, the roadblock, the, the impossibility of reform that we face in the present. And, by saying, oh, I'm just recovering ideas from the past. Um, and so he kind of at the same time wants to say, like, you know, this is what happened in the past. Oh, and and is relevant to to the present. But he, he the way he wants us to see liberalism is as an as everything except uh, Stalinism, basically, basically any anything that's everything else can be can be put in the put under the label of liberalism and thus liberalism has its you know arms wide open to all forms of protest and is just waiting for uh for movements to come up from the grassroots and tell it what needs to be changed next uh and and that's just um and and he when he's talking about sort of marx and the left left critique of liberalism he's he's like oh and marxists say that it's all of these are just ways that you know grudging concessions to let off let off steam and to prevent uh serious reforms and i'm i'm sorry but that's just what the historical record tells us right yeah acknowledging that critique doesn't uh doesn't mean that it's not true you know, he he doesn't actually defeat it. He just mentions it as if he's seen it, and then therefore right. And just because just because there were some liberal intellectuals who were indeed idealists, who who personally in their own ideas or their own convictions went further than any existing liberalism, and you know wanted to see wanted to see it you know embrace uh, justice in different ways that it did not. Um, doesn't really doesn't really deal with you know the world as it exists or, or as it as it did exist. It's a kind of it's a kind of you know idealism that just because a few people thought it means that that's what liberalism is and and can be. Yeah, yeah, and <clears throat> one one particularly striking absence here. Because he gives so much praise to John Stuart Mill, he says "On Liberty" is like the best book ever written, or something like that. Um, has to do with the, the the Irish famine, and so John Stuart Mill was alive in this period, and and I signed his uh, because uh, because "On Liberty" is such a you know when I teach it. Um, John Stuart Mill is an obvious you know, thing to assign for for liberalism. And he's not, he's, he is a more, a radical liberal, you know, especially later, you know, almost in some respects, you know, veering toward socialism. Um, And so he's not really typical. And then, and so this book on liberty, which is about, uh, you know, the virtues of free speech and how we should accept, you know, the most extreme, you know, speech as long as it's not hurting anyone and that's how society progresses is by listening to its outsiders and 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 students find that very attractive you know for for obvious reasons uh so i added his articles about the irish famine uh just to have a little bit more typical (laughs) 
uh, a taste of what uh, what 19th century liberalism was actually like. Yeah, one one um, one little little excerpt here. So, you know what happened during the Irish famine, right? Well, you had the potato blight, which destroyed the 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 crops um, that that's that that millions of Irish people relied on. And you know, as as Amartya Sen has demonstrated, the the way famines are are in the modern era are are never caused by a lack, an absolute lack of food. They're caused by by uh, the the poorest class of people being unable to buy the food that is uh, on on offer. You know, because you have something like this come up, natural disaster or something. And that tends to shoot up the price of food, and then it's put beyond the reach of of people who could, um, uh, you know, <clears throat> um, who don't who don't have the money to buy it, and so they starve. And um, right, and this is at know, a time when still, uh, you know, a major issue in politics is, or the, or even what we might call the left, or the you know the masses, uh, to the extent there's a kind of mass politics is is often about like uh against the the free market and food you know just you know going back to kind of early modern or medieval control of the price of grain which you know was done explicitly for this very reason that <laughs> yeah um and in response to you know calls for food relief um in, in one article, Mill says, um, you know, that that is like bit, lots of uh, money and, and food, um, you know, uh, shipments, classic humanitarian type of stuff. Mill says, quote, to which we reply that to give them such an assurance in the present state of their minds is certain to render any and every remedial measure inoperative. No measure calculated to be of use to Ireland has a chance of effect unless the exertions of the people are called forth with considerable intensity to cooperate with it. With their present habits, the only motive which is found sufficient to produce any real exertion, and that not always, is the fear of destitution. From that fear, it is proposed permanently to relieve them. What other motive is to be provided? It must be force, for reason and experience are equally against the wild idea that even and much more industrious people than the Irish will work with any ef- efficacy for employers who are not permitted to dismiss them. So this is classic. I mean, this this would come from a Republican politician today. Like, we can't give these poor people uh, any sort of, you know, welfare because it's going to destroy their, their uh, uh, industriousness. They're going to become lazy slackers, and they're just going to live off the government dole. And so... You know, I mean, it's just a an utter misunderstanding of the the facts on the ground, the reality of why this famine is happening, and and indeed whether or not these uh, you know these starving people could even work in the first place, you know, which which always becomes a problem in famines because people become so weak that they can't you know do anything productive at all in anyways, even if there were jobs available, and this comes directly out of classical liberal ideology that the that the market you know that that 
what the working class needs to needs to be is subordinated to the market. They need to be incentivized to work, and they need to get all of their money through uh, you know honest, productive labor or whatever. And to 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 relieve things like like uh, famines is only going to encourage shirking and make the problem worse. Yeah. Yeah. And and even though, um, you know, part of what Mill was worried about is kind of these Irish middlemen. And he had this idea of based on reforms of Ireland and et cetera. But still, you know, it's still the same same ideology. And this is uh, listen to what he says in On Liberty. And this is in his, you know, his uh, very kind of progressive sounding book about accepting all everyone and accepting minority opinions and all that. Those who are still in a state to require being taken care of by others must be protected against their own actions as well as against external injury. For the same reason, we may leave out of consideration those backward states of society in which the race itself may be considered in its nonage, as in its non-age. The early difficulties in the way of spontaneous progress are so great that there is seldom any choice of means for overcoming them, and a ruler full of the spirit of improvement is warranted in the use of any expedients that will attain an end, perhaps otherwise unattainable. Despotism is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians, provided the end be their improvement, and the means justified by actually effecting that end. Liberty as a principle has no application to any state of things anterior to the time when mankind have become capable of being improved by free and equal discussion. Mm. Um, and so, so yeah, wh- what was going on in Ireland and what was going on in Ireland for the, you know, and the English countryside for a good couple of centuries before that, uh, you know, there were a handful of people who were having free and equal discussion in parliament that was passing uh, enclosures and things like that that kicked people off of their land but uh, yeah those people those people starved or you know begged and became vagrants they didn't have really any chance to participate in in uh, free and equal discussion (laughs) yeah yeah and um... this is this is the core i would say the core you know, ideology and problem with Gopnik's book. It's it's about uh, the myth of free and equal discussion, the the romantic notion of liberalism as a public sphere. Um, sure, maybe needs to be improved and extended sometimes, but it basically always does. In the end, we always get there. Um, and this is the real problem with the fact that he doesn't come. Uh, he doesn't go all the way to he doesn't engage really with the present at all when, uh, you know, even the basic you know democratic rights to like, the right the right to vote are being uh, are being restricted as much as anyone can get away with. Yeah. And, you know, uh, self-proclaimed liberals like uh, Bill Clinton did this exact same um, thing in uh in in the 90s with uh, welfare reform which clinton said would would allow people to earn a paycheck not a welfare check and, and you know and this you know going this is that same genealogy of ideas coming through again you know much like 150 years later that income from the state is illegitimate 
And the only way for the working class to earn real money is if they, you know, participate in in the labor market. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and ironically, like for for a book and for um, for a, a tradition, you know, a, a, you know, thinking of the you know, liberal intellectuals and anti totalitarian intellectuals going back to the 90s or so that that Gopnik comes from, you know, their whole their whole thing is this extremely showy humanitarian uh, anti-totalitarianism and so anything that uh, essentially any kind of thinking at all any kind of any kind of big ideas any kind of radical reform um, or even not that radical reform uh, is dangerous and you know threatens to take us back to the horrors of the 20th century but when you look at um, you know the real arguments of even the most progressive uh, liberal historical liberals like John Stuart Mill, like the passage I just read, um, he's talking about progress and races and that there's, you know, states of progress and how if they're not, you know, basically if they're not evolved, you know, we can't, nothing we can do about it. It just has to be done by force. Uh, and I'm, that sounds to me exactly like, um, you know Stalin and the Kulaks and you know 1930s. <laughs> it's, a, I mean, it's the same. And there's a, there is a, you know, there is a, a certain uh, uh, isomorphism between uh, the the progress ideology of liberalism and the progress ideology of of, of Stalinism in the sense that you know really uh, we just have to get there by whatever means necessary and and you know you know take you have to break a few eggs to to make an omelet you know which is you know a trib a, usually used to sum up Stalin but it also you know could just as well apply to uh, to 19th century liberalism and and the the Soviet industrial revolution in the 1930s is uh, you know every aspect of it that people abhor was uh was you know pioneered in the english industrial revolution just over a longer period of time and so without quite the concentration or all at once intensity um but right. the the just rank indifference to human life and human suffering is is a uh, it, it was a capitalist thing long before it was a Stalinist thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's definitely a, a, a genetic similarity there. Um, um, you know, S Stalin had this ideological zealotry about how collective farming was going to be, you know, a super efficient way of, of producing farms, and and just like you know, the enclosure of the commons in England and so on. Um, I do think it's important to note that um, the, 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 collect, the, the collectivization experiment didn't actually work out. And I think in this, it may be in the same way that it didn't work out in a lot of liberal attempts to do, do similar things, that it, in fact, in the Soviet case, damaged their, their agriculture terribly and um reduced you know it was something like like half of all the the livestock in the country were 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 destroyed and um um agricultural exports actually declined 
and on on net didn't really contribute anything to the the Soviet industrialization. Um, but but this this is an interesting point because um, what I was going to bring up next was Gopnik's case against the left. He has a case against the right, which I you know is it's like it's fine. Of course, the right's wrong about about everything, um, but. He gets a lot more squirrely when it comes to the left, and one of his big arguments is, well, what about totalitarianism? You don't want to risk that, right? Yeah, and this is one of his uh, one of the perplexing things about uh, about the book is so it, you know on the one hand, liberalism is this you know radical reformist force that's open to uh, that's open to all all critiques and is just in constant uh, uh, confrontation with its limits and its weaknesses and its uh, imperfections. Uh, and on the other hand, um, we can't do any we can't do any of that. You know, we can't you know we can't criticize it. We can't uh, uh, we can't we have to be careful about destabilizing. Uh, order in the system because uh, because that's dangerous and that's where he sort of it, it veers back into this this kind of old 90s thing about um, just this hand-wringing you know humanitarianism that that you know any political reform is 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 going to lead to to concentration camps and gulags um, and that's uh, and yeah that's his that's his, his trump card against against the left yeah and and this to me seems it it just didn't square at all with with um you know any sort of commonsensical look at the way the u.s political system works um and and neither with the the way that the soviet totalitarianism actually happened either you know, so su- suppose uh, Bernie Sanders were to win the presidency, um, and and he were to sweep in, you know, this this cohort of, you know, hardcore lefty Democrats who were just hell bent on Medicare for all, and what the what the Gopnik um, uh, sort of mindset would would propose is like, well, no, don't do that because that's big. And big is bad by definition. What you should do is incrementalism, because incrementalism is good. And the the connection between to to say that like if you had the majorities in a democratically elected, um, uh, uh, you know, representative body to carry out really aggressive reform to address something to address a problem that is really really bad. What you should do is just aim as high as the problem would would um, sort of dictate based on your analysis of the situation. Why would you cut yourself off of the knees simply out of some, you know, um, adherence to moderation as such? Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's and, and the weird thing is that I think, you know, I think Gopnik would you know, he might even agree with that. And he might say that, um, you know, he would say, you know, that's happening in a, a democratic system. It's, uh, it's, um, 
therefore it's liberalism. Um, and he's a, you know, yeah. And he's a, and he's a Canadian. So he has, you know, he's, you know, believes in universal health care and things like that. He's not a, you know, not a reactionary in any sense. You know, I'm sure he would be happy with, uh, you know, a lot more social democ- democracy than we have. Um, sure. but that's the pro that's the problem with, uh, dealing with these kind of phantoms, you know, these ideological phantoms from the past, uh, instead of, uh, and this kind of outmoded, um, you know, 30 year old paradigm of anti-totalitarianism that just has no application to the actual political circumstances. You know, there is no, and he's, he's arguing against a kind of modern day Stalinism, which, you know, if it exists is, uh, extremely marginal and you know <laughs> unlikely to go anywhere near political power so it's 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 one of, in in refusing to talk about the actual present uh, he ends up just kind of recycling things from the past that are just not suited to to the present that he wants to address yeah and uh, you know and you, you you look at the history of the Soviet Union, and it's it's not really that hard to discern why it went so wrong. Um, you know, you you had a, a, a minority political faction which set itself up uh, uh, in an authoritarian—they they set up an authoritarian state, which eventually was consolidated, consolidated into a, a, a personal dictatorship. And any anybody who 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 accepts kind of like the the um, uh, arguments for why democracy is good could see that coming. And in fact, you know, Karl Kautsky uh, predicted exactly that, saying that that, that if the Bolsheviks came to power, um, you you know, on this minor minoritarian thing, Lenin was extremely bloodthirsty, very, very contemptuous of democracy, not as bloodthirsty as Stalin, as it turned out, but um, the, that was what you would get. You would get a personal dictatorship. He, he said that long, long before they ever took power. And he was a socialist. Um, you know, he was the Pope of Marxism for, for, for decades. And so, you know, it, 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 it just... The idea that if you ever do anything radical, that means, you know, concentration camps, it just doesn't bear the slightest scrutiny. Yeah. I mean, and, and as a, you know, as a purely theoretical matter, um, since that's what it is, it has no uh, real relation to, you know, our our moment. You know, I'm 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 sympathetic to the idea that, you know, you know, socialism can't be voted in and that it's, there's going to be, you know, there would be some kind of, uh, some kind of confrontation that is like a, a revolutionary break, whether it's an armed insurrection or not, and that it would, there would be some, you know, it would just require a kind of temporary state of emergency to have any kind of order. Um, I, I'm sympathetic to that, but it's just not, um, it's not even worth uh, talking about in relation to American politics in 2019. It's not, you know, we're, we're talking about 
maybe at, at the absolute best, uh, getting a slightly to the left uh, a politician or multiple politicians that are to the left of the current Democratic Party, which is not far to the left at all. Um, and, and so, I mean, people who don't even believe in, in, you know, ownership of the means, you know, public ownership of the means of production. So it's, it's just not, uh, there's talking about totalitarianism and revolution and, and Bolsheviks is a, um, it's either kind of leftist LARPing or it's kind of a kind of, uh, a, you know, liberal smokescreen or liberal or liberal LARPing, we might say, you know, liberals are wanting to relive the heroic days of opposing the Soviet Union when that, um, and, and it's just, it's never really found a reason to exist since then, um, is kind of what I think is that, that yeah, th this particular strain of American liberalism, um, and maybe not all his, you know, I'm all historical liberals or all historical American liberals even. Um, but since the, the cold war, since the fifties or so, uh, it has always defined itself by what it's against and by sort of as a, a bulwark, a moderating force, uh, on, on the global, uh, stage that is, you know, it uses a language of, of, uh, moderation and humanitarianism um, that can actually in practice be quite radical and revolutionary outside of the United States in terms of uh, wars and interventions in other other places um, and that whole tradition continues into the early 2000s and and you know essentially all of American foreign policy since then and but it's been one perpetual search after after another since the 1990s to find like an enemy to oppose, whether it's you know Iran or China or uh, or and now I just I get the sense that they're just they're absolutely thrilled to have a, a, a small socialist discourse in the U.S. so that they can like go back to their bread and butter, which is what yeah. you would expect Republicans to do but <laughs> yeah yeah um it's it's true and per, and perhaps worth noting that you know during the the early, early new deal which i would say i would i think it's fair to say is the most like aggressively leftist administration in in the history of the united states you know t taken taken together you could maybe say that the um abolishing slavery was more was more uh leftist but in terms of like the broad like total economic effects on every section of society you know really you know a kind of ec economic revolution in a sense um and there was a plot to overthrow roosevelt and install a military dictator oh, the, really? the, the the business plot yeah yeah, Smedley Butler, they, they um, some, who was a general, and they and he testified that that people had approached him. Um, n n sort of hard to know how serious it was exactly, but this was the kind of thing that that uh, did um, 
uh, manifest itself during during that period. But I want to move on um, to you. You have this great essay in Jacobin about Mark Lilla, who is is also you know he he has um, a different a slightly different maybe maybe slightly more theoretically worked out reason why you know aggressive reforms are bad um and uh so so could you could you uh run go through that a little explain that for us yeah and and so i think that i think uh what's uh you know where gopnik is confused and contradictory is that he's tr- he uh, actually when he was in his earlier career and his uh, he was, you know, also influenced by Isaiah Berlin, you know, the same person that, uh, you know, Mark Lilla and uh, these other people at the time uh, were really into. And so he's he's trying to kind of carry on that legacy and sort of renovate or, res- or resuscitate some of its arguments while also giving it a much more uh, progressive, you know, utopian spin uh, than they ever had. And 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 so. Mark Lilla would not say at all that liberalism is what Ab, you know Adam Gopnik describes it as, um, and he's much more consistent and you know theoretical in saying that. And although he's you know changed a bit over time too, and so his uh, recent more recent book is kind of a you know uh, a sort of top down co optation of uh, of of maybe a kind of Bernie's or progressive, you know, version of you know, working class liberalism, uh, but in, as a weapon against kind of le- other kinds of leftism or you know, uh, leftist identity politics and and trigger warnings and pronouns and all that kind of stuff. Um, but Lilla, you know, in in the '90s and early 2000s, you know, Lilla was. You know, much more consistent in the sense of a, a sort of elitist, you know, intellectual pessimism that sort of sees politics as, in this sense, that he gets from Thomas Hobbes as as um, just the bare minimum, holding the holding the line against the inevitable, just you know, bloody violence that that is is human nature of the war of all against all, um, and. That was, you know, that's not, obviously not a very uh, attractive uh, political position to, for most people. So here's, I'll read a couple of uh, quotes from Mark Lilla. Politics is not about serving the highest good. It was a problem that could be solved only if the passions were held in check. And mad dreams of turning men into angels or building divine cities remain just that, dreams. And then this other, um, I can't remember what the the occasion was it was this package in new york magazine i think it was about uh, the legacy of obama or something uh and this is uh, this is what lilla's contribution was americans are addicted to hope obama raised expectations he could not meet which just infuriated the kids until donald trump and bernie sanders offered them ice cream <laughs> and so this just kind of just this you know withering disdain for anyone who thinks that politics is uh politics can do any good can can change anyone and this is actually the kind of uh and there's a kind of radical right version of that which uh, gopnik talks about in his uh in his 
chapter on on the right he calls them tragic authoritarians and he would put like people like leo strauss in that in that category is just someone lil is very influenced by and they have this yeah. kind of they're perpetually caught in the um you know the ur texts are plato and ancient philosophy they have a cyclical view of history um nothing ever really changes um it's just you know cycles of rises and falls and to one tyranny after another uh and so even though um so Lil- lilla is actually a liberal and the, you know he does you know kind of embrace liberalism and the liberal tradition in some sense but in a more kind of uh not in a radical reformist way that that gopnik is trying to do but in a kind of um pessimistic way that liberalism is liberalism is a politics of of uh preventing violence and that's the best that's really the best that politics can do is 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 turn people away from utopia and from uh from any from big projects that are are always the beginning of 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 terror and and you know political violence yeah, and the, and with respect to Obama, you know, the thing that jumps out to me here is the bank bailout. And I haven't read Lilla's book, but I, I would presume he doesn't really talk about that all that much. No. Um, and <laughs> Not that I remember, at least. <laughs> here, you know, th- this was a set of policy decisions to basically, on on the one hand— rescue wall street from their own misdeeds um with with stupendous sums billions and billions in uh you know something like 600 billion dollars in cash and on the order of 29 trillion dollars in credit and then on the other hand um deliberately uh force homeowners to drown to save the banks again to 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 you know the 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 way the the Obama had a slush fund that was in the TARP bailout legislation which he could have used to to save homeowners to 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 refinance to get principal reductions and and so on yeah and uh what what his the guy he appointed Tim Geithner chose to do instead was to make the program an incomprehensible nightmare, push uh, push Obama to renege on his promise to support Cramdown, which is allowing uh, the value of your primary mortgage on your home to be written down to the actual value of the home, which can be done with any other asset. Um, and the 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 point was to prevent banks from taking the hit of a giant glug glug of uh, foreclosures and write-downs and so on coming through the system all at the same time, which would have really threatened the balance sheets of these banks, which were, you know, threatened. They they had tons of these toxic mortgage assets on their books, and they would have lost a lot of money, and that would have required, you know, perhaps another uncomfortable bailout or, you know— more re- more realistically, frankly, in a in a pragmatic sense, um, uh, 
nationalization right down, you know, like like cleaning up these banks. It's a, it's a it's a kind of lemon socialism, as it were. You know, these these shitty banks with with all these garbage assets um, that that really, even from a sort of realistic business conservative perspective, needed to be just like like basically, you know, uh, control alt delete, just flush this shit down the toilet. Let's get it done. And in fact, Obama ordered Biden, or sorry, <laughs> I get these confused, Geithner to do that with uh, Citigroup because it's it was the worst. It had the most garbage on his books, but he refused to do it. And enough bailout uh, money came through that that they eventually didn't have to um, to just like totally restructure this thing. And so it strikes me as just the absolute peak of intellectual unseriousness to actually look at the choices that this that this guy made. To, to determine whether or not any better world was actually possible and instead retreat into people from thousands of years ago who say, no, no, definitely not. The mob is there, and and so we just have to, you know, better things aren't possible. Yeah, yeah, and, and this, this is a good good moment to talk about um, uh, what, you know, what unites these kind of people People like Gopnik and Lilla, as as thinkers or as disciplinary think you know thinkers, is is there you know they're essentially you know historians of ideas or kind of they like deal with um, they talk about ideas from the past, um, and uh, there are more sophisticated ways of doing intellectual history. But even even I'd say the mainstream of it, which is you know the field I'm a part of. Uh, one of the you know the ten, the tendencies or the the potential problems with it is um, is a kind of it's uh, I mean one of the good things about it is that is that it gives you an opportunity to recover uh, ideas that were forgotten and that were um, that were often uh, smart and and brilliant and people you know lost you know lost in in actual politics and you know it's a way of of learning from the past but at the same time it's also a way of of constructing a a, a comforting past that's uh, outside of reality that in the sense that um, if we just uh, read Plato or John Stuart Mill or we can kind of create an, an ideal version of a, of a political philosophy that we uh, that makes us feel good um, or that you know seems to you know ring true or something like that um and none of these people know anything about either the the mechanics of history you know historical causes you know contingencies and necessities you know what what things had to happen and what things didn't have to happen you know what things were choices and political choices that were that were made and also um just the details of of economic history and how much of economic policymaking is is contingent on the choices that that politicians and leaders make um and that none of this stuff is uh is considered when we're talking about you know the platonic myths and how they reveal that uh that uh, the dangers of advising to tyrants or whatever, you know, whatever Mark Lilla is talking about. Um, 
and it's just uh, it's a it's totally and I you know as a somebody who's you know been in this field and it's pushed me more and more toward uh, toward Marxism is the is the fact that it deals with concrete reality. Um, it's not uh, it you know holds its own as a as a system of ideas and a, full, a comprehensive uh, philosophy, but it also is something that understands where the power really is and where the where the um, where the decisions are made and what's a what's a choice and what's not and and that's uh, you just never get it from from these people and that's and in that sense they're just uh, writing comforting fictions for people who you know want to think of themselves as erudite and you know readers of great books and ideas um but uh, are totally in the dark when it comes to uh what's really going on <laughs> um well um that's all the questions i had i think a good place to maybe maybe uh break things off anything you want to uh, mention or plug before I let you go? Um, I have, let's see, I don't have anything coming out right now. I think Descent is, I wrote an essay for Descent on the, on the Marxist philosopher from the 70s, Nikos Palantzis, and you know, his ideas about democratic socialism as both an analysis of the capitalist state and uh and a potential strategy for you know what what a democratic socialism that isn't about an authoritarian coups uh, would would look like. Um, that's the I think they've been promoting it the last few days. So that's you can probably find that on the Descent uh, website. Yeah, we'll we'll link that in the description here. Um, cool. Well, Davis Sessions, thanks for coming on and. Um, yeah, we'll we'll maybe see you at some feature date. All right, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going. <laughs>